All right, Jesse, those chimps are still haunting me a bit from last week. Who are we talking about this go around? I mean, who wouldn't be haunted by chimps? Fighting at the breakfast table. This is terrifying. A turn of the century, Black Widow, bodies buried in hog pens, a diabolical marriage murder plot, a shocking fire, and an enduring mystery with possibly a faked death? Today, we could only be covering the infamous Belle Gunness, Hell's Princess. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong. Whether it's worrisome weddings, hidden double lives, or a frontier killer masquerading as a farm mistress. <laughs> oh my God. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. Okay, Andy, we have reached our last maternity episode. How excited are you? (laughs) I'm like excited, but nervous because that means I have to give birth soon. (laughs) Yes, Andy is within days of her due date and I am about a week behind, so These babies be coming soon, although by the time this airs on April 7th, they will be old, old news. They'll be a month old. Uh Uh-huh. At least. Oh, my God. At least. That is crazy. So, guys, April 7th is three days before my birthday. My birthday is April 10th. Um, So, this is kind of like my birthday episode. Oh. And... (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which also my birthday has been totally wasted the last uh, last two years because you know how you like look forward to the birthdays that fall on Fridays and Saturdays? Yeah. So 2020 first birthday in quarantine was on a Friday and this year it's on a Saturday when I'm also still in quarantine and have a newborn baby. So my good birthdays were completely wasted on quarantine. Well, you know what that means when we finally can travel again, when it's on a Wednesday, that just means the full week with weekends included. 100%. I love the way you think. Yeah. This is why we're best friends. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like we're fine. We're fine. We'll get it back. Yeah. So very exciting. For my birthday, I chose probably one of my most favorite, to me, most fascinating true crime cases ever. You guys know how much I like the oldies. And this one is kind of borderline frontier murder, which is really fascinating to me. Just like from a different time when people could get away with a lot more. Yeah, I think you're really going to like this one. I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard the legend of Belle Gunness, and I'm going to try to really dig in. So even if you've heard it before, maybe you'll learn something new. The book I used was exquisitely written. It was Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belle Gunness, Butcher of Men by Harold Schechter. So without further ado, let's dig right into this fascinating tale. 16,000 people flocked to LaPorte, Indiana on a beautiful late spring day on May 10th, 1908. 
The farm road was packed with every transportation mode possible. Buggies, wagon, buckboards, bicycles, mothers pushing baby carriages, and even 50 or so smart new automobiles. Vendors called out their wares through megaphones, pushing hot roasted nuts, popcorn, and lemonade. Newspapers would later compare the scene to the most popular of fairs and carnivals. But the amusements today were hardly the normal attractions. There were no clowns, nor magicians, no carnival rides, nor exotic animals. No, the attraction at the heart of this macabre occasion was murder and death. Thousands had flocked to witness Bell Gunness's murder farm, the site where authorities were still digging up corpses. Beside one of the graves, where two bodies had only recently been unearthed, a portly fellow manned a makeshift refreshment stand, selling pink ice cream and cake. Enterprising youth hawked postcards featuring real photos of dismembered bodies, skulls, and of course the image of Lady Bluebird herself, Hell's Bell. Parents of small children reprimanded them for nearly falling in recently revealed body pits, while others picnicked beside the burnt-out husk of Bell's farmhouse. I mean, this is, this is, we like true crime, but this is taking it a little too far. Yeah, this is very reminiscent of um, the guy who stuffed his bride. Oh, yes, of um, the attraction. Count Carl von Tanzler. Yeah. Yes. Never before had the incongruity of human nature been so fully blasphemously displayed. The solemn, painful reality of murder and violence, as well as our perverse, insatiable need to witness it. This is the story of Butcher of Men, Belle Gunness, who killed at least 14 people, mostly men she lured with the promise of marriage and a big fat acreage to their death. And possibly up to 40. Yikes. Buckle up. Yep. Because this week we're heading back to the turn of the century for a little frontier murder. Actually, kind of a lot of frontier murder. This is a a very compelling, bizarro woman. I'm really excited to, to tell you this story, Andy. She was born on November 11th, 1859. Ooh, 11-11. in Selbu, Norway. Her birth name was Brynhild Polsdotter Storset. (laughs) (laughs) It really rolls off the tongue, don't you think? Yeah. Do it again. Yeah. Brynhild Polsdotter Storset. (laughs) That was the best best Norwegian guys I could muster up here. Oh, God. Yes. Paul's daughter, as she was quite literally the daughter of Paul Peterson Storset. Mm-hmm. A sharecropper farmer, as well as his wife, Bent, and her six other siblings. Not much is known of Belle's early days, seeing as it was rural Norway in the mid to late 1800s. But she wasn't known as a pleasant gal, to say the least. Here in Salbu, the local newspaper editorialized, she is remembered by many as a very bad human being, capricious and extremely malicious. She had unpretty habits, always in the mood for dirty tricks, talked a little and was a liar already as a child. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. As a grown-up, she was still little respected and was a scum of society. Well, then. 
I also think there's some descriptions of her in this that I think came out after she was revealed to be a murderess. So I think they might be letting how she turned out color their imaginations of her, you know? <laughs> so there was another rumor that also circulated later on that she was impregnated at 17 years old by the son of a wealthy landowner when she revealed to her young beau that she was expecting, instead of marrying her, he lured her into the woods and beat her so severely that she miscarried. Wow, that is so messed up. It's beyond messed up. According to the tale, her lover died soon afterwards of a digestive illness that symptoms were suspiciously similar to arsenic poisoning. If that's true, I don't blame her. I don't blame her either. Girl, take that trash out. In the 1880s, Brynhild moved to Chicago from Norway to live with her older sister, Nellie Larson, and her family. It was here that she changed her name to Americanize it and became known as Bella Peterson. The newly christened Bella washed laundry, did sewing jobs, and cleaned homes to make ends meet. Domestic services like this were super common for immigrant women of this era, especially unwed Norwegian women in Chicago in the 1800s. But Belle never really accustomed to the hard labor for crappy wages thing and was always looking for an easy buck and a way out. For a young woman in the 1880s, the only ticket to wealth was being born into it or marrying into it. So she set her matrimonial hopes high. From Hell's Princess, Harold Schechter wrote... The deprivation of Belle's youth had left her with a lust for wealth. My sister was insane on the subject of money, Nellie Larson would later remark. She would do anything to get it. As for marriage, Bella made no secret of what she wanted in a mate. She never seemed to care for a man for his own self, only for the money or luxury he was able to give her, Nellie observed. Years afterwards, Bella would say of her first husband, the father of her children, and by all accounts, kind and loving man, that she had stayed with him only because he provided her with a nice house. So husband number one was a fellow Norwegian named Mads Ditlev Anton Sorensen, whom... <laughs> Am I doing the karate guy thing? No, I, I have no idea about Norwegian or Scandinavian accents at all. I dated a Swede for like a year. Um, but yeah, that doesn't give me any right to even pretend I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So Mads, let's just call him Mads here. Bell married him in March of 1884 in a Norwegian Lutheran church. He was five years older than her, a well-muscled, balding man with prominent Nordic features and a handlebar mustache that was quite fashionable for the time. We'll see if I can dig up a picture for uh, for the Instagram. Belle herself was no looker. She was kind of has like a bulldoggy thing going on. And she was described as 5'9 and pushing 300 pounds. So she was a sturdy farm lass indeed. That's an inch taller than me and two times my weight pregnant. Double Andy's. Double, double pregnant Andy. Double pregnant Andy with just one more inch on me. Well, you would be a very poor farm mistress, I have to say. Maybe. You would not handle like a pig farm. She like had a pig farm. You got to heave no. a lot of hogs. No. No. Maybe like a soybean farm. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be great at a soybean farm. All right. All right. 
Okay, Mads worked as a night watchman for the Mandel Brothers department store, and he did fairly well for himself. However, the money was never enough for Belle, and the couple faced other hardships, most notably infertility. Belle's inability to conceive eventually even pushed away her sister Nellie after Belle demanded Nellie allow her to adopt Nellie's four-year-old daughter. Weird. It was super weird. So apparently Belle watched like the four-year-old while Nellie was super sick or something for two weeks. And then at the end of the two weeks, Nellie's like, okay, like I'm feeling better. Can you bring my daughter back? And Belle was like, you have like other kids. Can I just keep her? Can I just adopt her? And Nellie's like, no, you can't just keep my child. You crazy bitch. I mean, that's like the most crazy and entitled thing I've ever heard. It's like, well, you didn't need her for two weeks, so <laughs> I'm just going to formally adopt her now, okay? You're fine with that, yeah. right? That's cool. You don't need, you have like like six kids, whatever. You don't need this one. Um, in 1891, Belle finally achieved her goal of having a child when she adopted an infant named Jenny. When Jenny was eight months old, her mother, who was a family friend of Belle's, was dying, and Belle convinced the sick woman to bequeath the child to her. Wow. Yeah, that is morbid af. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's good if she wanted to help out, but, like, doing it on the deathbed is raw. Also, there was a father in the picture, too. So she's taking the kid away from the dad. The father, a man named Anton Olson, was too far gone in grief to fight Belle and relinquished care of his only child to the future serial killer. Later on, he remarried and attempted to regain custody of Jenny, but Belle fought him in court and she won. So she got to keep the kid. Huh. Yeah. Belle opened up a candy shop a couple of years later and seemed to have everything she could have ever wanted, a handsome husband, a baby girl, and now a burgeoning business venture. Unfortunately for the Sorensons, the candy shop was a huge failure. Less than a year after she opened the store, a fire broke out in the building. Only Belle and three-year-old Jenny were present at the time. Belle claimed that a small kerosene lamp exploded and caused the fire. The investigators could find no evidence of this being the cause of the fire and strongly suspected arson, but they could not prove either way, really. So the insurance ended up paying up. Afterwards, they sold the building and purchased a three-story townhouse on the outskirts of a well-to-do suburb. This was Belle's first successful insurance fraud, and she liked how it tasted. Uh-oh. <laughs> Oh, yeah, she gets she gets some money making schemes in her head over here. Over the next two years, Bella and Mad somehow acquired four more children, Caroline, Myrtle, Axel and Lucy. It's unclear how these kiddos came to be Sorensons, but it seems rather unlikely that after being barren for a decade, Bella would all of a sudden hit a fount of fertility in her late 30s. So it seems much more likely that these kids were adopted or even purchased. Wow. Oh, yeah. You could you could sell babies in the late 1800s. Whoa. Uh-huh. So only two out of four of these babies survived. What do you mean? Wait, they died. They're dead. Like it was just like a gamble. Like all like it was like, <laughs> we'll take these four. Maybe we'll keep a couple. 50-50, baby. <laughs> 
with Carolyn dying at five months old and little Axel dying at only three months. Knowing what we know now about Belle Gunnis, this seems highly suspicious. But back then, the infant mortality rate was alarmingly high. One baby out of every 10 live births ended up dead. So no one was even remotely alarmed when these children passed away. <sighs> and how old were they? Three and five months. Jesus. Yeah. Devastating if she didn't do it on purpose, which is also devastating in a different way for other people, notably the babies. In between raising and potentially killing babies, Belle and Mads accidentally got themselves embroiled in a scam, losing their entire $20,000 life savings, which is adjusted for inflation. It was like around 700 bucks back then. They ended up filing a lawsuit and recouped most of the money, but the ordeal was disheartening and provoked Belle's anger with her husband, who she now viewed as a low-income earner and a financial idiot. She sounds like a peach to be married to, huh? Totally. <laughs> well, Mads was many things. One thing he was not was uninsured. On the evening of April 10th, 1900, 84 years to the day before I was born, the Sorensen's house went up in flames. Luckily, all the household objects that were damaged or destroyed were heavily insured, and the Sorensen's netted a nice $650, which, if you remember, 700 was like 20 grand. So yep. they made a lot on that fire. Yep. So that wasn't the end of the insurance fraud for Belle, though. According to Schechter's Hell's Princess, at the time of the fire, Mads belonged to a mutual benefits association that provided him with a $2,000 life insurance policy set to expire on Monday, July 30th, 1900. He had decided to let that policy lapse and take out a new one for $3,000 that would become operative on the same day. That very Monday afternoon, Dr. J.C. Miller, a young physician who had once boarded with the Sorensons, received an urgent summons from Bella. Hurrying to their house, he found Mads fully clothed, lying dead atop his bed. Hmm. By then, another doctor, Charles E. Jones, the Sorensen's family physician, had arrived. Questioning Bella, they learned that her husband, who was suffering from a bad cold, had come home from work that morning complaining of a fearful headache. She had given him a dose of quinine powder, then gone down to the kitchen to prepare the children's dinner. When she went back upstairs a short while later to check on her husband, she found him dead. Hmm. Hmm. Thinking, as he later explained, that the druggist had made a mistake and given her morphine instead of quinine, Miller asked to see the paper in which the powder had been wrapped. Bella replied that she had thrown it away. With no other evidence to go on beyond the symptoms as Bella described them, the two doctors concluded that Mads had died of a cerebral hemorrhage. For Bella, the sole beneficiary of her husband's two life insurance policies, the timing of his sudden death could not have been more fortuitous. Had Sorensen died a day earlier, one newspaper later explained, his wife would have been able to collect only on the first policy for $2,000, or if a day later, only on the second for $3,000. Dying as he did, she collected on both the old and the new policies for a total of five grand. Translated into today's dollar, the widow Sorensen was richer by $150,000. Holy shit. 
I mean, come on. Nobody thought that was suspicious. She had a 24 window, a 24 hour window to kill this guy in and she made it happen. That is impressive as fuck. <laughs> I know. It's like, I'm not even mad. I'm kind of impressed. <laughs> it's it's like, like when you're what? scared, but also turned on. Yes. It's like, whoa. Oh my goodness. With her new windfall, Bella bought herself and her kids a beautiful 40-acre farm in LaPorte, Indiana, with a scandalous reputation. In the late 1800s, the LaPorte farmhouse had operated as the region's classiest little whorehouse, run by the infamous Madam Maddie Altec. When Maddie died suddenly a few years after opening the successful venture, rumors circulated that she had either killed herself after being jilted by a lover, or... She was poisoned by her own sister, who happened to be a rival brothel owner in South Bend. Stop. <laughs> yeah, so this place had a rich history of naughty women. The farm passed hands several times over the next eight years between Maddie and Belle's ownership, but eventually Belle's infamy would greatly surpass that of the bordello owner. A new farm requires a new man. So Belle married a former acquaintance and one-time boarder of her and Mads, another Norwegian immigrant named Peter Gunnis. And this is where she started going by Belle Gunnis. Of course. Peter was very handsome, with one source describing him as a fine-looking blonde Viking of a man with clear blue eyes and a pointed yellow beard and mustache. Uh, I'll add his photo to the Instagram so you guys can see if you agree with that description. Belle had stayed in touch with his family, and after Peter's wife died giving birth to their second child, she swooped in with a generous offer of matrimony. The fact that he agreed to it speaks more to the allure of Belle's 48-acre farm and promised to help raise his surviving two daughters and less to do with Belle's charm and beauty. Belle hadn't aged particularly gracefully and was at the time <laughs> described as a fat, heavy-featured woman with a big head covered with a mop of mud-colored hair, small eyes, huge hands and arms, and a gross body supported by feet grotesquely small. Can you imagine? I thought small that was... feet were supposed to be, like, sexy. I guess that they're not if they're not supporting your sturdy body. I don't know. Grotesquely small. Every other thing we've read about is like, hey, she had size four feet. She was hella hot, you know? So I don't know. Whoa. Yeah, I read this to Nathaniel and he was like, who? Who is describing her like this? It's just mean. This is just so mean. I was like, I'm pretty sure they, they described her after they found out she killed a bunch of people. So nobody felt bad for this description. Oh, wow. That's rough. Mm. It is really rough. <laughs> so uh, the physically opposite couple wed on April 1st, 1902. And unfortunately, Peter's seven-month-old daughter died only five days after the wedding. Uh, under her supervision? Uh-huh. It's so weird. She wants these kids, but then she keeps killing them. Yeah, I think maybe she's like accidentally rolling on them or something. <laughs> oh, God, that's so terrible. Oh, God. Also, my, like, biggest fear when I fall asleep breastfeeding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, so that was not exactly a good omen for their marriage, which did not turn out so great for Peter Gunnis. 
Only eight months after the couple tied the knot, Peter was found mysteriously deceased. She's, she's not wasting she's not any wasting time. time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On Tuesday, December 16th of the same year that they wed, a neighbor was summoned by 12-year-old eldest adopted daughter, Jenny Olson, who claimed her father had, quote, burned himself. When the neighbor arrived at the Gunnis farm, he found Peter sprawled face down in the parlor, laying on his nose with blood all over the floor. The neighbor, named Nicholson, took his pulse and found Peter dead. He ordered his son to fetch a doctor who also served as the county coroner. Coroner could tell at once that Peter had been dead for much, much longer than Belle had implied. So she had Ooh. basically implied that the accident had just happened and she sent Jenny to get help, right? Okay. Kind of. Yeah, that's what she first implied. But his body was already growing stiff with rigor mortis. So the coroner's like, wait, this timeline doesn't add up. Peter had had a terrible wound at the back of his head, and his nose was badly broken and bent at a hideous angle to one side. Though Belle appeared to be in hysterics, the men managed to coax a new story of what happened out of her. Because... At first, they're just asking Jenny, and she's just, like, crying in the corner and, like, not answering them. And they're like, okay, this guy's dead. You have to tell us what happened here, you know? From what the coroner could gather, her husband had gone into the kitchen to get his shoes, which he kept near the stove to stay warm. As he stooped to retrieve them, a meat grinder had tumbled from a shelf above his head striking the back of his skull and overturning a bowl of hot brine that scalded his neck. So she then said that he, despite his injuries, was like, hey, I'm I'm just got a headache. It's weird, but I feel okay. Just let me go to sleep. So she said he laid down to rest. And then a few hours later, she discovered him dead on the parlor floor. So though the coroner found this story highly suspect, he decided to reserve judgment until a post-mortem could be performed the next day. Was that Jenny or Belle telling that story? That was Belle when they finally okay. calmed her down. Yeah. Okay. The Nicholsons, the neighbors, were convinced that Belle had in fact murdered Peter, but they didn't want to make trouble for Belle or themselves. It was kind of like, you don't get involved in that ish. Yeah. Um, so they kept that fact to themselves. After the autopsy was conducted, the coroner was sure that the man had been severely hit more than once and requested to impanel a jury and conduct an inquest. During the inquest, Belle stuck to her story and little Jenny backed her up. When faced with some of the more puzzling aspects of the so-called accident, Belle just kind of feigned confusion. When asked how he had broken his nose, she professed ignorance. I can't say. I didn't notice the nose before they told me, which seemed bizarre because it was twisted and bleeding. Didn't he complain of that? Asked the coroner. Didn't he bleed from the nose? He didn't bleed from the nose at all, said Belle. They're like, what? So the coroner wondered if Belle thought it was possible that somebody may have come in here and killed him, hit him with that sausage grinder, and maybe like she was in another part of the house and didn't know. She was emphatic in her denial. If anybody had come in, I would have heard them some way or another. Could he, he had a have final like fallen on his face? Well, they they end up deciding that it seems like he was hit, he was bending yeah. over, he was hit by the sausage grinder and then fell on his face. 
that's that's what they're they they decide upon. Okay. Yeah. So the last question he asked Belle was about her relationship with Peter, who, when they had first investigated, you know, she was like in hysterics, seemed very upset by. And so he asked her, you always lived happily together, you and him. As far as I know, a dry eyed Belle said with a shrug. So yeah, so basically, they were stonewalled by Belle and her daughter. And they stuck to that story of that's what happened. So they concluded, like I said, that somehow he must have knocked the wall or the shelf and it fell on his head. He fell and broke his nose on the floor in his fall. But that still doesn't explain that she didn't notice that he broke his nose because she said he got up and was like, oh, I don't feel that good. I'm going to go lay down. And then he was dead later. And this is the second husband that is this dying is the of second husband. causes? Mm-hmm. So she got officially cleared of foul play, but the rumor mill continued to churn that Belle had probably offed both husbands. I mean, yeah. they know they know about the first one, too. Indeed, even little five-year-old daughter Myrtle reportedly told a kindergarten classmate, my mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell anyone. A few months after Peter died, another mysterious occurrence happened at the Guinness farm. Belle supposedly gave birth to a baby boy named Philip. The midwife who came to assist with the birth was shocked to have found that the baby was already born, bathed, and dressed, and Belle seemed in curiously good health. You've got to be kidding me. Uh-huh. Later that day, so supposedly the day she gave birth, a neighbor came by to help. Like, you know, you back then you're friendly with your neighbors. Your neighbor who's a single woman has a baby. You go to assist her, you know? And they found Belle, who was 43 years old, like, and this is, we're talking like 1900. This is not the 43-year-olds of today. No, this is know? like, in, in that time, you're like 60. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, this is not, we're not talking about J-Lo over here. We're talking about like old grandma. Um, they found her washing clothes in the backyard, which also was a very physical thing when you're talking about 1900. It's like those big washboards yeah. and tubs and hanging huge, heavy sheets and stuff. So the next day, a different neighbor witnessed Belle chasing after pigs and heaving hogs, supposedly one singular day after she gave birth. No, no, I could barely let, walk upstairs. I was going to say, I'll let you vouch for that one. <laughs> Oh, no. no. it was like, like I've said this before. It was like Vietnam down there. There was no way I was heaving hogs. Oh my God. No way. Yeah. So it seems highly suspect and we have no idea where she got this baby from. No, she's a baby stealer. She's a baby stealer. This one lived though. So I guess she liked this one. Gust, Peter's brother, came to Laporte to investigate his sibling's death and check on Swanhild, the oldest daughter of Peter, who had lived. He was suspicious of Belle as he believed his brother had a $2,500 life insurance policy that was supposed to only benefit Swanhild. However, Belle claimed that Peter had converted the insurance policy into stock in a mining company. 
though she could produce no stock certificates when asked. Instead, she suggested that she request duplicate certificates from the company and he stay for a little while and help her run the farm. Unsettled by Bell and listening to his gut, Gust eventually left with Swanhild in the middle of the night, undoubtedly saving both of their lives. He said that he saw something that was very troubling in Belle's eyes when she was talking about him staying. And he was like, nope, don't like that. I'm out. Bye. <laughs> Bye. With Peter gone, Belle took over all of the insane manual labor necessary for the upkeep of a farm. And even though she was a tough old farm broad who could reportedly heave a hog across her back, she needed help. It was time for Belle to either hire some help or find a new husband. When you say heave a hog, do you mean like carry a hog? Yeah, like carry it. Like pick it up and put it on your back. Like kill it and then take its big dead weight and like heave it to the place where you're going to butcher it. Those things are huge. Yeah. I mean, she had to be 300 pounds because those pigs are like usually over 300 pounds. Yeah. So she's like like a lady crossfitter or something. I don't she's know. She's the lady crossfit. The the like queen of I don't know picking up heavy stuff. Like I don't know who does that. Weightlifters, crossfitters, weightlifters. Yeah. Obviously obviously not me. <laughs> so I don't even know what they're called. So her first farmhand slash lover was a 30-year-old Norwegian immigrant named Olaf Lindbo who came to work on the Gunnis farm and later wrote to his father that he had plans to marry the widow. So he must have liked him a little older because she was like mid-40s by now. Not long after his father received the letter, did Belle tell a neighbor that her hired hand had left in the middle of the job and she needed to find new help. It would be more than four years before anyone would ever see Olaf again or at least what was left of him. Oh, this is the beginning of, it gets messy. Months after Olaf's disappearance, a man named Henry Gerholt came to work and live on the Gunnis farm like his predecessor. Another neighbor had made his acquaintance, but noticed his marked absence only months later. Belle explained that he wasn't cut out for farm work and had left her for Chicago. Later, when the neighbor noticed Belle wearing the man's heavy fur winter coat, he asked her why Henry would leave such a nice coat behind, especially when Chicago is so cold. She claimed he had left behind a trunk of unwanted items. The neighbor thought this was very odd indeed. It's very odd indeed. It is. In the late summer of 1905, shortly after Henry Gerhold disappeared, Belle began to branch out into advertising in Norwegian language newspapers for a husband. The ad, translated into English, read, Wanted, a woman who owns a beautifully located and valuable farm in first-class condition, wants a good and reliable man as a partner in same. Some little cash is required and will be furnished first-class security. So this ad got crazy responses. The mail carrier estimated that Belle received at least one to four letters every morning and sometimes as many as eight to ten letters a day. Whoa. Uh-huh. She was popular. This is this is what they don't tell you in Cosmo. You don't need to like have like a nice lip gloss or you know, blowjob technique. You just need sweet, sexy acreage. 
<laughs> That's what you need to catch a man, lady. Get yourself a big old tract of land. Oh my God. <laughs> Among some of the first enterprising and potentially amorous men were George Berry and Christian Hilkfen. George left Tuscola, Illinois with his life savings of 1500, roughly 40 grand in today's money, and only weeks later Christian from Wisconsin sold his farm for $2000 and moved to Laporte to be with Bell as well. Over the next few months, men flooded to the Gunnis homestead with hopes of acreage and a pleasing Norwegian wife in their hearts and their life savings in their pockets. So uh, this is from uh, Harold Schechter's book. According to the subsequent testimony of Emil Greening, a square-cut, commonsensical, happy 19-year-old that they hired as a farmhand, Mrs. Gunnis received men visitors all the time. A different man came nearly every week to stay at the house. She introduced them as cousins from Kansas, South Dakota, Wisconsin, and Chicago. Most of the men that came brought trunks with them. Mrs. Gunnis kept the cousins with her all the time in the parlor and her bedroom. She was always careful to make the children stay away from the cousins. So there was more men that could be definitively traced back to arriving on the murder farm during this period. And they were Emil Tell, a Swedish bachelor from Kansas, Ole Budsberg, a 50-year-old widower from Wisconsin, and John Moe, a 40-year-old Minnesotan man who visited his local bank to remove his $1,000 savings and told the teller that he was on his way to Laporte, Indiana to meet a woman. None of these men stayed around very long, though neither Greening nor anyone else witnessed their departure. Strangely, every single one of them left his trunk behind. Eventually, Greening recalled there were about 15 trunks, and one room was packed full of all kinds of men's clothing. Mrs. Gunnis said that the cousins had left their clothes, and she wasn't sure when they'd be back for them. I love how, like, certain she is with her lies. (laughs) She's very believable. She Mm -hmm. says them so forcibly. You know when, like, good liars just tell it to you in such an obvious and straightforward way that you're you're like, like, okay. "Hmm." I mean, I guess, am I crazy for thinking that that sounds weird? I guess I'm the crazy one. Like, it's totally normal to have 15 men's trunks and all of their belongings. I guess the cousins just left their stuff here. You know what it's like? It's like the Copeland's. Gosh, that was like back in November, that episode, The Farms, The Farmer. Yeah, 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 with the clothes in the closet. And the murder quilt. Yeah. Yeah, like just don't leave that evidence hanging around. No, she should have made a quilt out of it. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, reuse, recycle. Come on, get green. Sustainable. (laughs) In the summer of 1906, Belle hired a local Polish immigrant named William Brogiski, to dig a couple of holes in her hog pen. The exact <laughs> dimensions, six feet long, three feet wide, and four feet deep. Bell oh, claimed- Yeah, she's only going four feet down here. Bell claimed that the pits were to be used to dispose of rubbish. I guess that's what some women call their gentlemen callers. I, can- I should never write these jokes out. They're always so bad when I write them ahead of time. <laughs> Oh, by the fall of 1906, Belle's eldest daughter, Jenny, had turned into a strikingly gorgeous 16-year-old girl. 
So we'll definitely put a pick up on the Instagram because I found one. Um, but she's like really cute. She's blonde with very clear, pretty skin and a full mouth. Unsurprisingly, she attracted several potential husbands herself. One of her most ardent admirers was 19-year-old farmhand, Emil Greening, the one we already talked about, whom she became very close to. Greening would later explain that Jenny told him that Belle had promised to send her to college in California. Jenny said that her mother was arranging for a Laporte professor to escort her out west. One day, Greening was sent on an errand, and when he returned, Jenny was gone. Belle claimed in his absence the professor had come and taken Jenny to school. However, when suspicious Emil asked around, absolutely no one had seen Jenny leave, nor did they know of or witness a professor arriving at the Gunnis farm. I mean, this is a small town. They would notice the comings and goings. Yeah. Another suitor of Jenny's was very confused by her hasty departure because she had promised to say goodbye to him before she left on a Sunday. And when he showed up on Wednesday to see her, Belle was like, oh, she already left. So he thought that was really weird because she made sure to tell him when when she was leaving so he could say goodbye. He wrote Jenny several letters, but he never got a reply. When he inquired with Belle why he hadn't heard from her because Belle had given him this address... She claimed that she had thought he had gotten married and advised her daughter not to respond to him. He begged Belle to tell Jenny that it was actually his brother who had wed, not he himself, but Jenny continued to not write back. It was as if she disappeared. Uh-oh. Yep. Young handyman Emil Greening quit working at the Gunnis Farm when Jenny moved out, and in his place, a 37-year-old man named Ray Lamphier was hired on to help around the homestead. So Ray looks exactly like a very squirrely Michael Sheen, who you might know from Masters of Sex or Prodigal Son, Good Omens, Uh, Midnight in Paris. He's like the know-it-all boyfriend of Rachel McAdams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He looks like just a really like kind of tweaky version of Michael Sheen. Tweaky. He's just like his eyes in the picture are like, yeah. Um, Google him right now. Oh, my God. (laughs) Isn't that... It's totally Michael Sheen. Hilarious. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was a troubled alcoholic who had belonged to a once (laughs) prominent family. (laughs) It looks just like him, doesn't it? Wow, wow, wow. Uh Uh-huh. That's impressive. I know. I mean, I'm usually, like, really having to, like, squint to make these these work. And this one was just straight up. It's like him back in time. Yes. He was a troubled alcoholic who had belonged to a once prominent family. Though a skilled carpenter went sober, he was said to be, quote, a weak, worthless, no account man whose wages, when he earned them, were spent on liquor, sex workers, and gambling. Belle hired him to work the farm, and rumor has it he worked her body, too. Oh. (laughs) From Hell's Princess. By early July, Lamphere was living at the Gunnis Place, occupying the room on the second floor of the farmhouse recently vacated by Emil Greening. He had also, as he regularly boasted to his drinking companions, become her lover. The notion of the slightly built young man throwing himself into a sexual affair with the coarse-featured 280-pound female nearly 11 years his senior 
has led at least one student of the case to indulge in some armchair psychiatry, speculating that it was Belle's very maturity that made her irresistible to Lamphere. To a lonely man with an urge to be mothered, to return to the security of the womb, such a woman may have represented the safety of fulfillment without any of its responsibilities. So maybe he has some mommy issues is what they're saying. Maybe. Maybe, perhaps. It is also true, however, that other employees of Bell's had become her bedmates. One of them, Peter Colson, who worked on her farm for two years, would later describe in titillating detail how she would come to his room at night and make love to him with sweet words and caresses. She purred like a cat, Colson testified. She was soft and gentle in her ways. I never saw such a woman. Stop. Mm-mm, he liked it. She was big and juicy. Meow. Yeah. Throughout the fall of 1907, Ray and Mrs. Gunnis were seen often together. Looking very much like Jack Spratt and his wife, they rode into town in her wagon and strolled side by side along the streets. To his cronies, he would crow that she had begged him to marry her, and he flaunted the gifts she lavished on him, including a handsome silver watch. From a town laughingstock, a shiftless loafer and bum, as one newspaper described him, he was to become a master of a fine, sprawling farm until Andrew Helgelian showed up. Helgelian? Sounds Helgelian. like trouble. Yeah. Andrew Helgelian. Although I do not know about this pronunciation because it's Norwegian, so I could be totally off, but I'm pronouncing it as it looks on the page. I like what you're doing there. A guy. He was a 49-year-old farmer from South Dakota who had an extended courtship with Belle. The two exchanged over 150 letters to one another over an 18-month period. So she hooked him with her promises of a farm valued at $12,000 to $14,000, about four hundred grand in today's money. Yeah, I was going to say. And, I mean, that was an impressive parcel. Yeah. Um, and also the promise of a sweet Norwegian lifestyle, such as the one he was nostalgic for. This is why she was also targeting Norwegian men, because she would write to them in Norwegian. She would talk about all the dishes that she would make for them and all of the comforts of their homeland, you know. Pickled fish and, you know. All of the pickled herring that you can. And- <laughs> enjoy. Yum. Delicious. After many promises and obstacles and many, many letters from Belle begging him to hasten his arrival, Andrew finally moved to Laporte with his life savings of nearly $3,000 on January 3rd, 1908. So I think that made him one of the higher earners, you know, because the other guy had like only 1000 or this guy had like 1500 You know, he's got like almost $3,000. Belle guess, was over... I guess it would be highest contributors. Highest contributors, yes. <laughs> Belle was overjoyed to find her new victim so liquid and pleasing to the eye mm. and immediately kicked Ray Lamphere out of her bed and house. Literally, she told Ray that Andrew would get his bedroom and she sent him to sleep in the barn. Oh, Bye, Ray. Ray. I know, squirrely Sheen over here. He can't get any love. Later, Ray would say when the strapping Norwegian farmer arrived, his relationship with Belle changed overnight. We got along all right before that, and she used to come to my room at night, but after he came, she had no use for me. 
On a Tuesday, January 14th, Andrew redeemed certificates of deposit from his old bank in South Dakota into cash in Laporte for the full amount of $2,839, nearly $75,000 in today's money. That same day, Bell sent Ray Lamphere on an errand to Michigan City and instructed him to spend the night. Lamphere defied her orders, ending up returning to Laporte around 9.15 p.m. and telling a friend that he was going to see what the old lady was up to. He was supposed to, after sneaking around, go back to the bar and meet his friend back up, but he did not return that night. Oh, so she killed Mm. Andrew and Ray? Maybe. You gotta find out. Well, as for Andrew... I guess you're going to find out about him right now because it's the next line. (laughs) No one ever saw Andrew Helgelian alive again. No, she's got that money. She got that money. She don't need him anymore. So Andrew had told his brother, Asel, that he was going to take stock of the Laporte situation and he'd be back in 10 days no matter what, either because it didn't work out or because it did and he was returning to pick up his belongings and sell his farm. When he didn't return, Asel became extremely concerned, and he sent Belle a letter. Belle wrote back that while Andrew had paid her a visit, he had only stayed for a mere hour, and she was surprised to hear that he had not yet returned home. However, Andrew's farmhand uncovered dozens of letters from Belle at Andrew's house that indicated their relationship was much more than she was letting on and clearly required more than an hour's visit. (laughs) Hopefully. Yeah, Asel wasn't about to let his brother's disappearance go uninvestigated. Meanwhile, Belle and Ray appeared to have suffered a significant falling out. So Ray's still alive. It's unclear what caused the rift, but either Belle fired Ray on February 3rd, 1908, or he quit due to unpaid wages. But whatever it was, it caused a huge amount of bitterness between the former lovers. Soon, Ray was suing Bell for money and belongings he left at the farm, and Bell made several reports to the sheriff alleging stalking, harassment, and trespassing on Lamphere's part. Hmm. While this was going on, Asel Helgelian was still pressing Bell on his brother's whereabouts, and he wasn't buying what she was selling. Bell claimed that Andrew had told her when he stopped by that he was going to search for a third brother of theirs. Apparently, they had a brother who was a degenerate gambler who had disappeared. And now Andrew was headed to Chicago, then New York. And he said he would even potentially go all the way back to Norway if that's what it took to find their brother. So Asel's like, He has never cared about this brother. We've talked about it before. He wouldn't go all the way back to Norway to track him down. Yeah. On March, yeah, it didn't make any sense. On March 28th, one day after writing her letter to Asel, Belle filed an affidavit alleging Ray Lamphere was insane. She told the authorities that he needed to be committed due to statements he had made to her during his employment and the fact that he was now showing up to her house and peering in the windows at all hours of the night. Creeper. A three me- yeah, super creepy. A three-member insanity commission was appointed to examine Lamphere's mental condition and found him, quote, slightly nervous, but not insane. As Belle struggled to come up with new lies to fend off Andrew's brother, she also found herself in court for Ray Lamphere-related issues, where she was once again questioned about Peter Gunnis's death and even the amount of life insurance she had collected from both previous husbands. 
By late April, the walls were closing in on the murderess and she began to panic. She lost a vandalism and trespassing suit against Ray when it was proven by witnesses that he could not have possibly been on her property at the time of her allegations, forcing Belle to pay the court costs and exonerating Lamphere. Still, she told a woman who ran a store, an acquaintance of hers, that she feared that Ray would set her house on fire and murder her and her children in their sleep. Whoa, that's dramatic. And specific. Also, isn't he like a third of her size? Yeah, he's a little guy. Yeah. I think she could fend him off. Yeah. On April 27th, 1908, Belle's daughter's teacher recalled that both little girls came to school in tears. They had been harshly punished and beaten by their mother for stepping foot in the cellar where she had forbidden them from going. Later that same day, Belle stopped by her lawyer to finalize her will. She left all of her property to be split among her three children, Myrtle, Lucy, and Philip. In the event of all of their deaths, she left the farm to the Norwegian Children's Home of Chicago. Much later, it would be pointed out that she curiously left Jenny, who was supposedly at school in California, out of her will entirely. After her visit to her attorneys, she purchased groceries and two gallons of kerosene. Upon returning to the homestead, Belle fixed up a dinner of bread and butter, dried beef, salmon, beefsteak, and potatoes for herself her children, and Joe Maxson, the hired hand who had taken Lamphere's place. <laughs> it's a hearty dinner. Yeah, and like, I'm just going to get some kerosene. And two gallons of kerosene. Maxson retired at 8.30 p.m. in his small second-story bedroom and awoke, confused many hours later, to billowing clouds of smoke so thick he began choking and coughing almost immediately. Leaping from his bed, he stuck his head out the window for fresh air and saw that the rest of the house was on fire. He pulled his boots on and attempted to kick down the door that separated his room from the main house where Belle and her children slept, but he could not break it down. So he raced down the back steps and retrieved an axe to attempt to enter the house from the front door. The front door wouldn't break, so he went to a panel that was next to the front door and he started like trying to axe it open. And as he connected with the house, the roof collapsed in flames. So at the same time, a teenager from a neighboring farm had ridden his bicycle over and he witnessed Joe attempting to break through the front door and saw exactly what happened. So there was no um, question of whether Joe did this. Like people saw him trying to like break in to help them. Yeah. Joe took the buggy to the sheriff's office, but by the time neighbors and the authorities arrived, there was nothing and certainly no one to save from the burning rubble. It was a foregone conclusion that Belle and the children hadn't made it out. Almost immediately, the fire became the source of fascination and intense speculation for the townsfolk who gathered to witness the devastation of the mysterious Belle Gunness's home and hearth. Rumors abounded that Belle had been unwell mentally, potentially plagued by guilt after murdering her second husband, and that perhaps she had killed herself and her children after setting the house on fire. But even more prevalent was the theory that Ray Lamphere had enacted fiery revenge on the woman who had rejected and fired him. Did they find her body? Eventually, yes. Okay, 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 okay. So naturally, even before the rubble has cleared and they get in there to get the corpse, 
Ray, they like went to go question Ray. Of course. Yeah. Ray was now working for his cousin, a farmer named John Wheatbrook. When the sheriff went to collect him for questioning, Ray burst out. Did those three children and the woman get out of the building? When asked how he knew about the fire, because it had just occurred, he said he had woken up at 3 a.m. to set out on the six-mile walk to get to the Wheatbrook farm, and when he passed near the Gunnis farm, he had seen smoke coming out the windows and around the roof. When asked why he didn't yell out or notify anyone, he said, I didn't think it was any of my business. Huh? Huh? Highly suspicious. Under heavy interrogations, Ray stuck to the story, only changing why he failed to raise the alarm. He said it was because, one, he had a contentious relationship with Belle and everybody knew it, and so he didn't want to get blamed for the fire. But also, number two, he had been spending the night prior to the arson with a local black widow, and he had begged the authorities not to tell anyone this relationship was taboo for a couple reasons. Obviously, during this time, there was insane racism. Yeah. Roughly around the time of Bell Gunnis's murders in the house fire, Indiana was home to the largest KKK branch in the nation. Yeah, Indiana was, and unfortunately, I think there still is, like, chapters there yeah it was bad so well life is never easy for african americans and racism is still very much alive this was a particularly terrible time to be a black woman in indiana oh god oh that poor woman the courtship was also surprising because elizabeth smith was also in her 70s that was the woman the woman yeah that he was having the affair with remember he's like 37 she was in her 70s Yes, back in the early 1900s. So that's real, real old. Holy shit. Yeah, she was nearly twice as old as Ray Lamphere. So I think it goes without saying that going from a nearly 300-pound murderess to an elderly widow would definitely categorize Ray as having some very interesting tastes in women. I'm looking up Elizabeth Smith showed up when I when I googled searched him before but I didn't know who it was until now uh-huh. obviously it was his rumored paramour oh my god she's granny uh, yeah she's a granny she's I mean set we we're talking about how like 43 was like 60 back then 70 was like 90 although she looks pretty good no I mean she's you can tell she was a beautiful young woman absolutely but um yes yeah. so on, ray. ray you you definitely have mommy issues and maybe grandmommy issues maybe granny issues yeah yeah so elizabeth confirmed that he had been with her until 4 a.m which would be his alibi because it seems like the fire started before 4 a.m though she claimed ray was just crashing at her place and there was no romance taking place between them so i don't know maybe there wasn't but they they could not explain why he was staying there how they met or like why if he was like boarding with her why he wasn't paying her money (laughs) yeah yeah so it was it's kind of historically assumed they were together but we don't know for really no okay yep Despite this corroboration, when four burned bodies were recovered from the burned out shell of a house, Ray was arrested for arson and four first degree murder charges for Belle and her children. 
The remains were so badly burned that there was no way to conclusively ID the bodies other than by their size and sex. They found an adult woman, two girls, and one boy, as they were expecting. But most curiously, there was a hole in the boy child's skull similar to a bullet hole, and the adult woman's head, presumably Belle's, was mysteriously missing. No head. What? Yes. They could not find a skull for the grown female corpse. Unable to locate Belle's head in the ruins, the sheriff now and wondered. And there's no way she's not alive still. We don't know. She could be. She could absolutely be alive. She killed a bunch of people. Why wouldn't she kill a woman and put another woman's body in the fire? It's a theory. That is crazy. Isn't this wild? This is why I love this story. It's crazy. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So without finding the head, the sheriff is now wondering if Ray Lamphere didn't just set fire to the house. Did he decapitate her prior to setting the fire to cover up his murderous crimes? However, even if that was the case, did he take the skull with him? Where's the skull? Yeah, I don't think Ray's up to that shit. I do I not think Ray, squirrely little Ray, was doing any of this. Nelly, he was like knocking boots with his like hottie granny widow. That's yeah, what he was doing. and like doing. drinking at the bar. Like, no. Yeah, he's not a like a multi-murderer arsonist over here. He's just a little weirdo. Yeah. So Nellie, Belle's sister, came to collect what remained of Belle and the children so they could be buried in Chicago and was shocked to find out that Belle had passed her over to leave the acreage and desirable farmland to an orphanage. She was especially puzzled that niece Jenny had not been mentioned in the will altogether and didn't know where Jenny was. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nellie wasn't the only person in search of answers about their family member's disappearance. Asil Helgelian had come to Laporte to try to force a meeting with Bell and involve the sheriff's department in his search for his brother and was naturally shocked to find her dead and the farmhouse decimated. When he arrived, two men, hired hand Joe Maxson and neighbor Daniel Hudson, were still sifting through the rubble, attempting to find Bell's head. And Asil decided to join them and see if he could unearth a clue to his brother's fate. After canvassing the farm, Asil asked Joe Maxson if he knew of any hole that had been dug or filled in around the springtime. Maxson said he had, in fact, helped Mrs. Gunnis fill in a refuse hole back in March. Asil asked for a shovel, and the three men began to dig up the supposed garbage pit. It didn't take too long for the most dreadful smell to assault their nostrils. Something far more foul than an old junk and rotten vegetable heap was buried in the hole. About four feet down, the men's shovels hit an old gunny sack that contained a man's severed arm. Maxon immediately raced to town to get the sheriff. (laughs) The sheriff brought deputies and the coroner to the site to investigate the authorities dug up what appeared to be the dismembered corpse of an adult male from Hell's Princess. Oh, my God. Coroner Mack would later depose that it was impossible to provide a particular and minute description of the corpse, owing to the fact that the head was separate from the torso, as was each arm from the shoulder down and each leg from about three inches above the knee down. 
and to further the fact that putrefaction had set in. The face, moreover, or what remained of it, was, in the words of one chronicler, a thing of horror, sunken holes for eyes, a leering gash for a mouth, a zigzag crack running from the top of the skull to the forehead. Ugh. Oh, and it smelled really, really bad. Certain deductions could be drawn from the putrid remains despite their appalling condition. It seemed clear, for example, that the victim had fought for his life. Across his left wrist, as if he had lifted it to ward off a slashing blow, were two deep cuts laying it open to the bone. Another savage blow had chopped off the first joints of every finger on his right hand. In a death grip, the mutilated hand held a tuft of short, brown, curly hair torn from the head of his murderer. Which is like Belle's hair. Yeah. Uh-huh. The ghastly face, though resembling a Halloween horror mask more than anything human, also retained enough of its features to make an identification possible. I recognize it by the form of the face across the eye, the forehead, across the cheeks. Asel Helgelian would later testify. When you have been with your brother every day for 15 years, you know him. Ugh. Ugh, Asel's long search for his brother Andrew had come to an end in a trash pit in Belle Gunness's barnyard. Oh, at least he had some closure. I mean, he worked real hard for that closure, so. Yeah. It, it's, as much as I'd never like to look at anyone's corpse, I feel like it's better that he knew what happened and, you know, who did it. Yeah, 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 for sure. Sheriff Smutzer asked Joe Maxson if he knew of any other soft spots or filled in holes on the property and the community got digging. This is like back in the day where it wasn't like cops or like forensic pathologists. This was just like the neighboring (laughs) farmers digging up bodies with their shovels. Yeah, with their pitchforks Uh and torches. (laughs) Yep. In a different rubbish pit, they recovered the jumbled dismembered remains of two men one grown woman, and one female adolescent. Each body divided into six pieces. Though all of the remains were in deplorable condition, the female adolescent was instantly recognizable due to the thick matted tresses of blonde hair still clinging to her skull. Of course, it was Jenny Olson, who had (gasps) most certainly not gone to California. Nope. Nope. The day they uncovered her makeshift grave, coincidentally, would have been Jenny's 18th birthday, May 5th, 1908. Well, it was super sad because that poor girl never had a shot. If only her father could have retained custody. That's really sad. sad. Yeah. But also, doesn't this make it make such a more valid point that like, she definitely got some like big bone woman and beheaded her and lit the place on fire and ran. Yeah. The thing is, it's crazy is that we don't even think the woman was big boned. Oh, really? Just that destroyed that. It was just so destroyed that this comes up later. And this is a big part of what people think she's still out there or was still out there, you know, a hundred years ago. By now, the authorities realized that Bell was a ghoulish multi-murderer. The bodies were in such a state of decomposition that it was clear Ray Lamphere could not have committed these specific murders, especially without Bell's knowledge or consent. 
When questioned about the new developments, Ray was initially shocked, but realized through questioning that maybe he should not have been so surprised. Bell had often asked him to purchase rat poison and chloroform. He was also aware of the men's trunks she kept in her possession. Hello? Red flag. <laughs> and in all of his time living with Belle, he had never seen her either send or receive a letter to her supposedly beloved daughter. While volunteers were now digging up the murder farm, searching for even more victims, the sheriff was made aware that Bell was still receiving mail to the post office and had gotten a couple letters from gentlemen callers interested in coming to Laporte to meet the Merry Widow. Right up till the very end, Bell was trolling for new victims. Trolling for some D. Yeah, she was. D as in death, so I can take your money. <laughs> the volunteers unearthed four more unknown bodies, leaving the body count up to nine, not counting Bell's supposed burned corpse and those of her children. The newspapers were in a frenzy and the serial killings received national attention. Soon, Bell had a number of colorful nicknames, including the Laporte Ghoul, the Indiana Ogress, the Human Vampire, the Female Bluebeard, the High Priestess of Murder, the Queen of Crime, and Hell's Princess. What's your favorite? Oh, definitely Hell's Princess. Okay, yeah. I love that one. I'm also going to start calling Alden that when she has a temper tantrum. <laughs> Terrible twos, man. Hell's princess. Hilarious. One newspaper described her as a modern Lady Macbeth who poured blood into her coffers and turned it into gold which was pretty metaphorically close to the truth, as Bell's murders were certainly financially motivated. <laughs> pretty soon after receiving the letters that Bell wrote to Andrew Helgelian from his brother and locating other victims' families, it became clear what Bell's scam was. She would entice the men to her farm with promises of marriage or of a good deal on buying her property, made sure they brought their life savings in cash and would then either chloroform or poison them while entertaining them. After which she would dismember the bodies just as coldly as she would butcher a hog and bury the body parts on her farm. See, this is why like we really shouldn't be eating meat either because people normalize <laughs> butchering animals and then they become serial killers and it's like are you saying that just because of Catherine knight and val gunnis over here like maybe yeah. if they didn't butcher pigs they went to butchered men do you think they would have hey i would say that there's an overwhelming number of people in the world a vast majority indeed who eat meat or even butcher animals and don't kill people i don't know <laughs> No, you know what? I'm going to find a vegan murderer for you, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to dig one up and I'm going to tell you the whole podcast. Sure. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. So this theory would be somewhat proven correct when quantities of strychnine poison were found in Andrew Helgelian's stomach during his autopsy. So it seemed likely that's what she was doing. 
only a small handful of men that had answered the siren song could be recognized or properly ID'd after having spent so much time decomposing and without the advent of DNA testing. So to this day, we do not know the extent of Belle's murderous inclinations or the names of all of her victims. By May 8th, two more men's bodies were discovered, bringing the found corpse count up to 11. But remember, she had like minimum 15 trunks. And I think more because that was like 15 trunks by the time Emil Greening left. I just don't get how like if you're on a farm, you're not feeding this to the the bodies to the pigs. Isn't that like... I mean, she probably did some of them because they think yeah. she killed really up to 40 people. So... Insane. So some of them probably went to the pigs and then I guess some of them she just dumped in her yard. So let's remember that not only has Belle's skull still not been found. So again, we're absolutely not clear if the corpse in the fire was indeed hers. But Ray Lamphere is still in prison and expected to stand trial for the arson and murder of the Gunnis family. By mid-May, the Laporte authorities were still planning to prosecute Ray Lamphere, and newspapers such as the New York Times were positing their theories regarding the fire. Here are some of the popular theories of the time. One, that with Ray potentially having knowledge of her crimes and Asel Helgelian coming to investigate, Belle killed her three children, set fire to her house, and then killed herself as well to avoid exposure and conceal her crimes. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Two, that knowing the jig was up, Belle killed another woman, removed the head from the corpse to mislead the authorities so they wouldn't find, you know, her teeth, killed her kids, and set the house on fire and escaped. More likely. Mm, more likely. I, I like that one. That one's the one that does it for me, I think. <laughs> N- number three, that Ray Lamphere did the killings and arson motivated by revenge and jealousy. Or number four, one that was roundly denied by everyone eventually, was that Belle hadn't actually killed any of these people, that this was a body farm that mobsters in Chicago would send the corpses of people they killed to be buried and disposed of. Wow, that's a a reach. Yeah, and that apparently... They had feared that Belle was going to expose them, so they killed her and her kids and made it look like an accident. Yeah, no. Definitely not. She went to town and got two things of kerosene. Like, what are we talking about here? Yep. So, yeah, I definitely am most attracted to number two. And this was the theory that also resonated with most of the media-consuming United States. As a result, sightings of Belle Gunnis began to happen everywhere, with scores of innocent, girthy women of a certain age being suspected, held for questioning, or even once all the way arrested in an attempt to bring Belle to justice. These poor women. That's amazing. Yeah, like there was just Belle arrests happening everywhere, and they were absolutely not her, of course. (laughs) While volunteers continued to dig on site, the Gunnis murder became a tourist destination with special excursion trains and ferries bringing visitors from Chicago, Indianapolis, and even further afield. Every hotel in LaPorte and nearby Michigan City was soon booked up and the hoteliers were now renting out cots in hallways. Altogether, somewhere between 16,000 and 20,000 morbid gawkers descended upon the mass grave site in May of 1908. Wow. 
That's insane. That is crazy. Got people really hard up for something to do, huh? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't shit to do. <laughs> There's no TV. It's like, want to go look at some holes where dead people were? <laughs> I guess so. In Laporte, Indiana, especially like it's the Midwest in 1908. Like, what else are you going to do? Go eat your pink ice cream and cake over next to a gravesite, you weirdo. Meanwhile, the sheriff, still wanting someone to pay for at least one crime, was desperately looking for Belle's head so he could build a stronger case against Ray. Belle's dentist reported that she had paid for some detailed bridge work and 18-karat gold crowns. So if somebody could locate the teeth among the ashes, he would be able to make a positive identification. In order to find the teeth, they hired a famous prospector named Louis Schultz, known to his friends as Old Klondike. And he combed through the debris in search of the veritable needle in the haystack, or literally tooth in a massive pile of ash and rubble, as it were. After nearly three weeks of tireless sifting, Old Klondike discovered an upper and lower bridge work that he turned over to the sheriff and Belle's dentist positively identified it as hers. Belle Gunnis either truly perished in the fire or ripped the bridge work from her mouth to better disguise her escape. A painful and incredibly difficult thing to do, but not impossible. What do you think? I think it's extremely far-fetched that she would rip the bridge work out of her mouth but I still like it I still like the theory I still like the fact that she is bananas cuckoo killed all these people that 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 shit shit. you know people have like cut off fingers they've like done stuff to get out of crap before like why wouldn't she what if it was already like a little loose and she just like you know pulled a tooth out oh god oh god the baby's moving so crazy right now uh, it likes all the, the weird dentistry, forensic dentistry talk. Nothing like a little forensic dentistry and a frontier murder to really get a baby oh, going. God. So, yeah, it's it's a theory. In any case, the district attorney officially charged Ray Lamphere with arson and murder, <sighs> not only of the Gunnesses, but also Andrew Helgelian. And his, oh. trial, mm-hmm, and his trial began on November 9th of 1908. On the second day of jury selection, Ray suddenly grew extremely pale and he collapsed onto the defense table. When he attempted to stand, blood gushed from his nose and mouth. Ew. Mm-hmm. The sheriff gave zero shits about Lamphere's health concerns and stated it was only a minor hemorrhage and hauled him back into court after only a brief recess. The prison doctor feared tuberculosis, but the next day, Lamphere was back to his uh, normal twitchy self. The old TB. The old TB. It'll, it'll come and get you. So the basis of the prosecution's argument against Lamphere was that Ray had come across Bell murdering or dismembering Andrew Helgelian that night when he was supposed to have been staying overnight in Michigan City. Instead of being horrified, he offered to help her dispose of the body or even participated in the murder in exchange for a cut of the profits. Hmm. However, he began to get greedy and attempted to extort Belle for more and more money. So she fired him, confident he couldn't go to the sheriff without also incriminating himself. Okay. 
That's when he began to stalk and harass her as evidenced by the multiple police reports Bell filed with the sheriff's office. Eventually driven mad with jealousy and a desire for revenge, not to mention hard up for cash, Ray killed the Gunnis family and robbed Bell of her misbegotten gains and then set the farm on fire to conceal his crimes. The prosecution also brought up the fact that the Gunnis farm was not on the most direct path to the Wheatbrook farm from Elizabeth Smith. So he had purposely gone out of his way to go by the place. Why would he do that if it wasn't to set the fire, spy on her, do something nefarious? The prosecutor closed his opening arguments by saying that everybody knew Belle was a huge piece of shit and she'd killed all those people. But those kids deserved justice, too. And that's what they had to do here, which is a totally valid point. Yeah. So the defense's story was that Belle knew Asel Helgelian was coming to reveal her villainy. So she actually set up a campaign to frame Ray Lamphere, hence the multiple reports to the sheriff and the lost court case. Obviously, the woman was a cruel, callous killer who had already murdered one (laughs) child. Why wouldn't she kill the others to set up old Ray and fake her own death? One child minimum. One child minimum. Not talking about the three infants. Yeah. Yes. The three babies. They contended that's why she told the woman at the store that she specifically feared Ray would kill her and her kids and burn her house down. She was sowing the seeds before her fake death. They believed that she removed her bridge work and escaped scot-free with all of the cash. Also minus three young dependents. She didn't have to worry about those kids anymore. (sighs) The evidence the defense had to back up this theory was, A, that she bought an abundance of kerosene on the very day of the fire. Suspect? I think so. (laughs) I think so, indeed. B, she was seen with a woman in her buggy the day of the fire who was smaller than Belle and was not seen again after the deadly blaze, nor was an additional body found afterwards. The coroner had also concluded the body of the woman found decapitated was much smaller in both weight and height than Mrs. Gunnis. Although the prosecution attempted to argue that she had been cooked down by the fire to a more petite husk of a woman is that how that works no no it was like even in the book they were like every housewife who cooks a roast know that it can't cook down by that amount of whatever girth yes yes so it seems unlikely that the body was bells very mysterious Also, traces of strychnine poison were found in the children's charred bodies. Oh, no. Therefore, she must have poisoned them before lighting the fire. Yeah. And shot one. Yeah, we don't, we still don't know why that kid had a bullet hole in his head. Because he was shot. (laughs) Yes. That's that's a very salient point you make there, Andy. And subtle. (laughs) Honestly... I actually find both of these arguments pretty compelling. Like, Which I feel like rarely happens. Never happens. We always have like one that we're like, okay, this is obvious. The other one's so ridiculous, you yeah. know? And both of these arguments are kind of compelling. It's that frontier time. Oh, that's why these cases are so good. 
So after closing remarks for both sides, the judge instructed the jury to choose out of the following verdicts and its accompanying sentence. They could choose from one, guilty of murder in the first degree with a death sentence, two, guilty of murder in the first degree but with life imprisonment, three, guilty of murder in the second degree but with life imprisonment, four, guilty of manslaughter, which carried two to 21 years, or guilty of arson, which also carried two to 21 years, or of course, not guilty of any of the charges. Okay. At 5.30 p.m. on Thanksgiving Eve, the jurors filed out of the courtroom to deliberate. After 26 hours, the jury returned and said they had come to a conclusion after 19 votes. 26 hours straight? Yes. So they were sequestered together, given meals and stuff. I don't, I, I mean, obviously they slept, but they had spent like the whole next day together. Crazy. Mm-hmm. The foreman did ask if he could read a statement explaining the verdict before they announced it, but the judge refused, stating they must announce simply the verdict first. Somewhat resigned, the foreman found Ray Lamphere guilty of only arson. What? Uh-huh. The foreman declined reading the statement after the verdict, though, saying only it would do no good now. So we have no idea what he wanted to say before reading the verdict, but he wouldn't say it afterwards. Yeah, well, he should have let him read it then. I know. I, and it's, it's lost to time now. The judge sentenced Ray to prison in Michigan City for the indeterminate amount of 2 to 21 years and <laughs> fined him $5,000. Interviewed that evening by the Laporte Weekly Herald, Ray said, eh, it could have been worse. I don't have any particular complaint. The evidence was pretty strong against me, so I'm willing to take my medicine. Sure, I was hoping for an acquittal, but my conscience is clear, and that helps them. Very casual about this. <laughs> so, in the end, Ray didn't end up serving much time at all because he passed away on December 30th, 1909, about 13 months into his sentence of... TB. Of course, tuberculosis. Yeah, when you're hemorrhaging out the nose and mouth and, mouth. and eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's not just like you got allergies. <laughs> it's not the pollen. Take some Zyrtec, dude. <laughs> Get back up on trial. Yep, the hemorrhage on the second day of trial had indeed been a symptom of TB after all. Frustrating to everyone was that Ray never issued any sort of deathbed confession, despite knowing he was near death for weeks, if not months. He, he doesn't have anything to confess. Uh, that's it. He maintained until the very end that he had not killed the Gunnesses or set the house on fire, nor had he witnessed Bell killing Andrew that night he came home early. In short, he had nothing to say. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there ended up being a reverend who claimed that Lamphere had admitted to the murders and arson in like a final uh, confession, but it could not be proven. And also apparently this guy was like a virulent racist and he even like implicated Elizabeth Smith in it like they both did it. So it sounds like he was just like a piece being of shit. Racist. Yeah, he was just a piece <laughs> of shit. Like, yeah. So everyone was like, that's not true. We don't believe that. Um, so, yeah, that was it. The fascination with the legend of Lady Bluebird persisted and several bell sightings occurred for decades after the crimes. 
One of the more compelling theories was that Belle moved to Los Angeles and assumed the false identity of a Mrs. Esther Carlson, originally from Sweden. She, along with a female accomplice, poisoned her elderly employer, whom she was a housekeeper for. After the man's son revealed her crimes, Mrs. Carlson apparently also attempted to poison Anna Erickson, the accomplice, to shut the only witness up. Oh, my God. This sounds like her. It sounds like her M.O. Anna survived and ratted Esther Carlson out over the murder of her employer, but also revealed that Esther had poisoned her husband and another male companion in 1925. While investigating the murders the police found a battered trunk in Mrs. Carlson's home that included an old photograph of three little children. The photograph was revealed to be a picture of Belle Gunness's three children, Myrtle, Lucy, and Philip. Mm-hmm. That, paired with a physical similarity, caused investigators and the media to determine that Esther Carlson was indeed the infamous Belle Gunness finally found. However, Esther strongly refuted the claim, providing a detailed biography that made it impossible for her to be the infamous butcher of men. Furthermore, only days or weeks after this accusation and before she could even stand trial for all the murders that Esther committed, she died as well of tuberculosis. What? (laughs) Yes, we had another TB death. So, according to They couldn't just check her mouth to see if she (laughs) pulled her teeth out? I mean, maybe they did. It doesn't say. According to Harold Schechter in 2014, Newt Eric Jensen, a native of Salbu, Norway, Bell's birthplace, embarked on a research mission to settle the question of Esther Carlson's true identity. After consulting census books, cemetery records, city directories, and various other documents, he definitively established that the story the dying Carlson told about her background was true in every detail. She was not Belle Gunness. Why did she have a picture of the kids? I, d- I don't know. Maybe she heard about the case and felt bad. Maybe she was one of those like onlookers who like bought a postcard. I don't buy it. So, the mystery endures. Apparently, they also attempted to DNA sequence the headless corpse that was in the fire, but the material was too degraded and the results were inconclusive. Man. I know. So, I don't think we'll ever know what happened to Belle Gunness, the ogress of Indiana, Hell's Princess. This is a very shocking way for me to... And our maternity episodes because you hate unsolved shit. (laughs) You know what? Nathaniel said the same thing when I told him this story. He was like, why would you do this? He's like, you hate unsolved mysteries. And you have been like talking about how this is like your favorite case of all time. He's like, what is wrong with you? He's like, I feel so unsettled. He's like, I'm angry. Like, how could you do this to me? And I don't know why uh, this one, I can, I can get behind the mystery of this one. Maybe because it's so old, maybe because it was so easy to get away with stuff. Mm -hmm. It does help that it's old. It's more of a legend even than a real true crime, you know? Yeah. It doesn't feel like, you know, trying to figure out 
about aliens coming down and like moving people from one location to the other in like 2000 or Jean Benet or something yeah you know yeah. it's yeah. different it hits a little different over here um hilarious. yeah so I don't know what do you think happened I I think that we shouldn't trust someone named Newt <laughs> to, <laughs> to determine whether Esther was Belle or not yeah I mean I don't know I guess they could have I didn't read that they DNA tested like any of Esther's relatives or anything. Yeah, he could be biased. He could be related to some, he could be related to whoever Belle was impersonating as Esther and trying to clear her name. And so you are a Belle Gunness conspiracy theorist over here. There's a whole network of people protecting Belle Gunness slash Esther Carlson. You know, I just. No. I mean, the Esther Carlson was a great theory, but they say it's not true. They. <laughs> Who's they? <laughs> uh, all right, guys. So we made it. You know, we will be back here next week and it'll feel like no time Nothing has passed. Happened. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happened. And for our, you. <laughs> for you, our lives will be irrevocably changed. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really excited that we'll be back with you next week, which is many weeks in the future for us now. Uh, thank you for hanging out with us throughout this crazy period while we jammed all these episodes in. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty intense. Pretty intense. And, and now, Andy, I will allow you to go into labor. Thank you. <laughs> Did, you hear that? That? Did you hear that? Poor Andy. I have been writing these gosh darn things so slowly. And Andy's so ready to be done because she's due a week ahead of me. And I keep like moving our recording dates because I'm so slow at getting this done. And so she keeps being like, oh man, I'm so ready. I'm gonna, I feel like I, you know, I'm already dilated X amount and I'm gonna go into labor. And I'm like, no, no, you cannot go into labor until we get this last episode done. So we did it. And we did it. So I release you. Okay, baby dandy. Let's let's get into the world. Okay, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> In conclusion, don't bring your life savings on a first date. It's not going to go well. <laughs> it's not. Uh, you also should never trust a woman who is just magically acquires babies. <laughs> no. No. Where did those peas come from? It's suspicious. Very sketch. Super, super sus there. And as always, trust your gut so you don't end up in Belle Gunness's hog pen. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys.